0: Please help me to say what the Bible says, nothing more and nothing less, and to apply it practically. And Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, write your word on our hearts that we might have faith and bring forth the fruit of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, as we turn to this seventh and last of the seven letters, it's important first to think about the nature of this church. This church was very close to the uh, church at Colossae. They were just down the road from each other. In fact, the letter to Colossians, we're told, was to be read in Laodicea. And we're not sure if the book of Ephesians isn't that letter to Colossae. Uh, to, uh, uh, to um, excuse me, it, we're not sure that the book of Ephesians isn't the letter to the church Uh, at Laodicea but Colossians does say some things that are interesting we might want to look over there for a moment because it helps us uh, have insight very very wealthy we look at the very end uh, look at chapter 2 Colossians 2 verse 1 page 1833 I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea And for all who have not met me personally. So Paul did not evidently visit Laodicea. Uh, Paul evidently did not visit Colossae. But he did write the letter uh, of Colossians and instructed them to read it in Laodicea. They're just down the road from each other. Uh, They're probably about the same distance as from, if you take uh, greater Texarkana, the metro area, from on the east side to the west side. And, you know, walking it by foot, it's a distance, but it's not that far. Laodicea was at a crossroads of many routes, and they were therefore a fabulously rich church. They were rolling in the cash. It was a center for the production of clothing. They had famous black wool. They also had water that was brought in and by the time that those hot springs arrived in Laodicea they were lukewarm and if you've ever I will never forget a telephone call at 2 a.m. someone had, had shot himself and I'm gonna have to wake myself up and I I uh, went and splashed water on my face, wet my hair down, threw on a suit of clothes, and I knew I've got to wake up. So I took, uh, I took tap water with warm water, and I put a tablespoon of instant coffee in it, stirred it around, and slugged it down. And I'm going to tell you, when you see about Laodicea, and Jesus said, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of, your mouth, out of my mouth, that makes sense. Lukewarm doesn't taste real good. Ice cold, really hot, great. But in Laodicea, by the time those hot springs arrived, arrived in Laodicea, they were tepid. And so... Uh, it was not very palatable water to drink. And they also had special minerals. And they were a famous medical center. It would be like what Houston, Texas is today in, in the United States and indeed in the Americas because people fly to Houston from South America because MD Anderson is world famous. So it was a famous medical center. They, they had... Uh, Chemicals They put on eyes. So you had all these things going for it, and they did not lack money. How many people here would like to have more money? May I see your hand? Let's be honest. Anybody here not want to have more money? May I see your hand? Okay, that's more honest. We all think, you know, money's the answer to everything. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, it's kind of hinted at that way. But you know, if you're down in South or East Louisiana, money is not the answer to everything unless you can get a helicopter to come in and fly you out. Money is only so good for so much. This was an incredibly wealthy church. And what goes along with wealth? Lots of things, corruption. And the other problem is people often get rain going uh, down their nostrils. Because they're so stuck up. Pride. Pride is a great, great, terrible thing that goes with wealth. People think they're better than other people just because they got a ton of money. Again, I'm not speaking disparagingly of wealth. I'm saying that the church at Laodicea, their biggest problem was they had too much money. Really? It's amazing that the love of money is the root of all evil. It is. The love of money. They were rich. They didn't think they needed anything. You know, as you read this letter of the, to the Laodiceans, they're not really condemned for anything at all. They don't have Jezebel in the church. They don't have this heresy or that heresy. There's no gross immorality. There's only one problem. When you got plenty of money, you don't need God. That's why uh, Agar, you know that there are some verses in the Bible written by Agar at the end of Proverbs. And he said, give me neither poverty nor riches. What's wrong with poverty? He said, well, unless I'm hungry and starving and I don't know what to do, I steal And bring a a terrible reproach. Or lest I be full and say, who's the Lord? The biggest problem in America is we got too much money. Think about it. Think about the world my grandparents were born in the 1860s. My grandparents. Daddy was born in 1906. The world that they all lived in was very different than the world I lived in. What came about after World War II? An amazing prosperity in this country fueled and financed by the D word. What's the D word? It ought to be a cuss word. D-E-B-T. Debt. What got us out of the Great Depression? It was World War II. And then we continued on a roll and people were able to buy homes for the first time that normally couldn't have bought them and we've seen amazing prosperity in this country indoor plumbing I had friends in college who didn't have that in their home what goes along with indoor plumbing you don't have to take a stick and make sure the black widows and brown recluses aren't underneath the seat I've had to do that what's happened with all that prosperity air conditioning we didn't have an air conditioner till I left home You know what? Prosperity. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. What has it done to us? i got to have air conditioning, don't you? Are we going to come to this church in August when there's no electricity? Who wants to sit in here and cook? And this is not built. Modern churches are not built for heat. Just think about the prosperity of America. Maybe what we see in modern America is what we see in Laodicea. They didn't need God. When you got plenty of money, when you've got good medical care right around you, when people have to come through your town in order to go other places and you get a little cut on it, when everybody thinks you're great, hmm, that's Laodicea. And it really makes sense when you understand where they were located and their enormous wealth. And when the city was destroyed with an earthquake, the Roman emperor was going to rebuild it for them. And you know what they said? We don't need that tarp money. Tarp money. Oh, that's what they used to give out a year ago. We don't need your money. Can you imagine saying to the Roman emperor, we don't need your money? Wow, I mean, these people were rich, and so they had need of nothing in their own minds. Now, you see, again, they've got a connection with Colossae, and that is an important thing because it helps us understand what we're looking at today in Colossians. If you look here at Colossians uh, chapter 1 and uh, look here at verse... Fifteen, Colossians 1.15, page 1832. It helps us understand what Jesus says about himself in the letter to the Laodiceans. Because he describes himself as the faithful witness. I'm going to read it to you while you look at Colossians 1.15. He describes himself as the faithful witness. As the words of the amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And the word that's translated ruler there is the Greek word arche. Arche, we get a lot of words from arche, like archaeology. That has to do with a sense of time. Arche, like ruler. So we have angels and we have archangels. We have bishops and we have archbishops and so on. So, Jesus is the archae of God's creation. Is it ruler or is it time? Well, we're going to answer that question definitively by looking at the letter that was also written to these people if you look at Colossians. So Jesus is the amen. Every promise of God, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 20, as many as may be the promises of God are yea and amen or yea and amen in him. He's the faithful and true witness. There are a lot of witnesses today, as they've always been throughout human history, that aren't honest, that don't tell the truth. But he's the faithful and true witness, and he's the archaic of God's creation. So does it have to do with time, or does it have to do with authority? Let's look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. We're told here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? God is invisible, but in Jesus Christ, God becomes visible. What does that mean? It means that there never was a human being who walked this earth, who so perfectly, clearly, and absolutely manifested the invisible God. Why is that true? Because Jesus is God. He is not simply like you and me in the image of God. He is God and he has taken on a human body. Now, I, I had a thing that I wrote some time ago distributed to you. You might want to read it this afternoon because it kind of illustrates these things. So I don't go into them in detail. But notice what we're told here. That he is the image of the invisible God. So this morning, as I was shaving, I looked in the mirror. What did I see? I saw my reflection. Who did I see? I saw Bob. I didn't see Sandy. I saw Bob. That was my image. That was my reflection. Now we are designed to reflect God too, but not like Jesus. Because Jesus actually is God. Notice what we're told here. He's the firstborn over all creation. That sounds like time, doesn't it? Does that mean he's the first creature? Let's ask that question. Is Paul saying to the church at Colossae that Jesus is a creature and he's the very first of them? We'll read further and see that's not true. Then in verse 16, he says, For by him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Keep reading, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? Wait a minute. Jesus wasn't the first person resurrected, was he? Do you remember remember the man that was thrown in the grave of Elisha? And they had to go hurriedly and and, uh, throw this man somewhere to hide because the raiders were coming. And when he touched the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. Do you remember that we had various people Whose children were raised from the dead under Elijah, under Elisha. You remember that Jesus happens to walk into the village of Nain, and there's a widow lady, and there's a funeral procession, and he stops the funeral procession. What's this man doing stopping the funeral procession? We're in a funeral procession. What's he doing stopping it? He touches the beer that he's being carried on. And he raises the young man from the dead. So Jesus is not the first chronologically to be raised from the dead, is he? But why is he called the firstborn from among the dead? It's the same reason why he's called in verse 15 the firstborn over all creation. And that takes us back to Old Testament law. In fact, it takes us back to the time that Esau and Jacob were getting the blessing from their daddy. What happened? You remember how Jacob deceived his daddy? His daddy had gone blind and his daddy could only feel and smell. Obviously he didn't have COVID. And um, so anyhow, with with Rebekah's full involvement, Jacob goes in. Rebecca's fixed the meal the old man liked, made it really good, put some of that Tony Sashree. No, y'all don't use that up here. He made that taste so good she knew exactly what Isaac liked. And she took the skin off the young goats and she put them on her son's hands and arms and put it on his neck. And you remember that what the man said. He said Man, he said, "The voice is Jacob's. Let me come over here and and let me touch you." And he felt the goat hair, and he said, "But he feels like he feels like Esau." And then he and then he had put on Esau's clothes. So he said, "The smell of my son's clothes is is like the smell of a field that Yahweh has blessed." In other words, he he smelled like dirt. (laughs) And what happens? Isaac gives the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob, not to Esau. And later, just about the time he's blessed Jacob, here comes Esau. Daddy, here I am. Look what I got. I got you some good food. And and it says that Isaac trembled. And he says, your brother came and got your birthright. He got the blessing of the firstborn. And and Esau began to cry. He said, do you not have another blessing, Daddy? Is there only one blessing? And you've got to understand something about the ancient Near East and the law of God as it became uh, inscripturated. There is always one heir of the Father. The heir of the father is the chief over everybody else. Do you ever wonder why when Isaac, or rather when Jacob, went to bless the sons of Joseph who had been taken from him and is down in Egypt, that he ends up blessing both the sons of Joseph? And then he reverses his hands because Joseph wants him to bless Ephraim with his left hand and Manasseh, the firstborn, with his right But through the cross, Ephraim, the younger, receives the blessing of the firstborn. Do you ever wonder why there are 13 tribes of Israel and not 12? That the tribe of Levi is taken out to be among all the other tribes? There are really 13 tribes. Why? Because Joseph... Receives the blessing of the firstborn which is a double portion because Joseph at that time is the chief heir of his father Jacob just as Jacob became the chief heir of Isaac there's always the blessing of the firstborn so what I want you to understand is that as this word is used in Colossians and also in Revelation it has to do with the firstborn in the sense of rule and authority. What I want you to understand is that the Lord Jesus Christ isn't the first person to be raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is not the first of all creatures. He is not a creature in His divine nature. He is a creature in His human nature. And we need never forget that. That's why I'd like you to take this home and look at it. Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he is the heir of everything. In all the parables Jesus talks about with vineyards and whatnot, he's the heir. He's the one that inherits it all. Wow. You know, that's amazing when we look at our inheritance laws. They're different. But in the Old Testament, one child received the double portion, and he became the successor Of his father. Others receive things, but only one was the successor. It's kind of like a business. One person is the head of the business, he's the CEO, or the president, or the chairman of the board. And when he dies, one of his heirs is going to be the CEO, chairman, and president uh, of his heirs, not all of them. And that's the way it is in the divine government. The Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of the eternal God. There never was a time He was not. And in His human nature, He is the heir of everything. That means He inherits it all. That means you belong to Him and I belong to Him. This whole building belongs to Him. This whole town belongs to Him. This whole country belongs to Him. And when we reject his archaic, his rule, his authority over us as the firstborn of all creation, as the heir of the whole creation, as the firstborn from the dead, that is, all of the dead who have ever been raised. He is preeminent. He is the chief. He is supreme. He's overall. And he is, the, he is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. And just look at it very quickly as we wrap it up. In verse 17 of Colossians, he says, "...he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God, verse 19, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him." And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish. Now, the point I want to make is at this point, to wrap this up as we prepare for Holy Communion, is this. When you realize that Jesus is the RK, he's the beginning of everything. Before there ever were worlds, before there was any time, before anything ever existed, when there was only God, he was in eternal fellowship and communion with his Father. He's not the Father. He's not the Spirit. But he's one with them. There's only one true and living God. God didn't need you. He didn't need me. He didn't need this creation. He was sufficient in and of himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Always in communion. Always in fellowship. And the Lord Jesus, because he loves you. Loves you. Loves me. Because he loves us. He left the glory of heaven. He came down to this earth. He, sinned, he, he lived a sinless life. And he died on the cross in our place. That's why communion is so central in the, in the worship of the Christian church. Because communion always brings us back to the core truth. The core truth is not, hey, turn over a new leaf. The core truth is, let's end abortion. That's not it. I don't want to see abortion either. The core truth is not let's get out and vote. The core truth is, let, is not let's save America. The core truth is not let's make sure we have a better military. The core truth is let's get more money in this church. The core truth is not, let's build a bigger building like the wonderful things they could build in Laodicea. What is the core truth? The core truth is the gospel. And what is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and on the third day he rose again from the dead that's the core truth that's why we're here that's why I'm preaching I'm preaching so that you might understand and therefore experience the reality of the Lord's supper it's important to remember that Christ shed his precious blood for you and me it's important to remember that his body was broken on the cross for us and pierced with a Roman spear that's important that's the core thing that's what it's all about and if we forget that shut the doors may Ichabod be written over this place if we ever get away from the gospel because the gospel is what it's all about and because of the gospel Christ is the head. He's the arcade. He's the ruler. He is the prototype. He is the firstborn. He is the heir of all things. And he owns you. And he can express that ownership of you either in the last day by saying, depart from me, I never knew you. Or because you love him, because you put your trust in him, he can say, Welcome. You're my children. You're my lambs. I laid down my life for you. Let's pray. Lord, bless this wine and bless this bread that as we eat of these things, we would eat your word and we would connect again one more time with the precious Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the eternal God, who without ceasing to be God, left heaven and became a real and true human being, just like us in every way, except he never sinned. He lived inside the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary for nine months, and then was born, and then died for us. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.